excited to be part of Willamette Week Give Guide this year. When you support KBOO through Give Guide, not only does it support your favorite community radio station, it also gives a little back to you in return. When you donate $10 or more, you'll get full access to hundreds of local coupons in the Chinook Book app, plus a few other goodies. Available while supplies last, so donate to KBOO on Give Guide today at kboo.fm slash give. Thanks. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, President Donald Trump on Tuesday moved to cut troop levels in Afghanistan and Iraq during his last days in office. The Washington Post reported, based on official sources, that Trump had planned to, quote, roughly halve the number of U.S. troops from around 5,000 to 2,500 by the time President-elect Joe Biden assumes office on January 20th. Trump had promised to draw down troops, but has waited until the end of his term to do so, and only after it was apparent that he'd lost the election. Meanwhile, he increased the pace and intensity of airstrikes in Afghanistan over the course of his tenure. Trump's GOP allies are not on the same page on troop productions, however. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, A rapid withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan now would hurt our allies and delight the people who wish us harm. NATO leaders also balked, with Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying on Tuesday that U.S. troop drawdowns in an uncoordinated manner could threaten NATO troops. Trump's desire to bring troops home is not an anti-war impulse, as recent news reports revealed that he sought military options to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities recently. Trump apparently asked senior military leaders last Thursday at a White House meeting if the U.S. could bomb Iran's main nuclear processing site. Numerous leaders reportedly discouraged Trump, including Vice President Mike Pence, State Secretary Mike Pompeo, and newly installed Pentagon head Christopher Miller. According to the New York Times, Mr. Trump might still be looking at ways to strike Iranian assets and allies, including militias in Iraq. Reuters reports that Iran's leaders warned of a, quote, crushing response in the event of a U.S. military strike. Meanwhile, President Trump continues to pretend as though he won the November 3rd election in spite of a decisive loss to Joe Biden and in the face of growing skepticism from all sides. Trump's own attorney, Mark Scaringi, has publicly said that lawsuits would not change the outcome of the election. And three attorneys have now withdrawn from representing the Trump campaign in Pennsylvania. Trump's own national security adviser, Robert O'Brien, on Monday publicly acknowledged Biden's win. And more and more Republican senators are now joining in. The Republican reluctance to acknowledge the Democratic will of nearly 80 million Americans in order to remain loyal to Trump has been stunning and has offered Trump the cover to refuse to cooperate in a transition process. In remarks to reporters on Monday, Joe Biden said, quote, I find this more embarrassing for the country than debilitating for my ability to get started. But he also said that Trump's refusal to cooperate on the transition process will likely cost lives in relation to the coronavirus pandemic. What do you see as the biggest threat to your transition right now, given President Trump's unprecedented attempt to obstruct and delay a smooth transfer of power? More people may die. If we had to wait until January 20th to start that planning, it puts us behind over a month, month and a half. And so it's important that it be done that there be coordination now. 
That's President-elect Joe Biden in remarks to reporters on Monday. A central part of Biden's plan to combat the pandemic is a national mask mandate. Many Republican governors have resisted this. But now, as the pandemic spreads far and wide, some are acknowledging their wrongdoing by issuing late mask mandates. Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota is among them. His state has the highest COVID-19 mortality rate in the world. In neighboring South Dakota, which also has incredibly high rates of infections and deaths, a nurse's tweets have gone viral after she explained that many of her patients deny the existence of the virus even in their last moments. Jody Daring tweeted, quote, these people really think this isn't going to happen to them. And then they stop yelling at you when they get intubated. She shared more in an interview on CNN. And the reason I tweeted what I did is it wasn't one particular patient. It's just a culmination of so many people. And their last dying words are, um, this can't be happening, it's not real. And when they should be spending time FaceTiming their families, they're filled with anger and hatred. And it just made me really sad. That's South Dakota-based nurse Jody Daring, whose experience treating COVID-19 patients has received a lot of attention and illustrated the effects of President Trump's promotion of conspiracy theories. Across the nation, more than a million children have tested positive for the virus. And in California, the state broke a single-day record for the highest number of infections. California's Governor Gavin Newsom issued a pause on reopening the state, saying, quote, we are seeing community spread broadly now throughout the state of California. President-elect Joe Biden explained that what his scientific advisors were telling him is that, quote, there should be no group more than 10 people in one room inside the home. In the halls of the U.S. Senate, tensions over COVID-19 exposure broke out as well. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who was among those lawmakers called back to Washington, D.C. to vote on Trump's conservative judicial appointments, called out Republican Senator Dan Sullivan. I'd start by asking the presiding officer to please wear a mask as he speaks, and people below him are, I can't tell you what to do, but... I know that the behavior... I don't wear a mask when I'm speaking, like most senators. Well, I, most senators... So I'll, I'll put on, but I don't need your instruction from... Anybody. I know you don't need my instruction, but I, there clearly isn't much interest in this body in public health. We have a president who hasn't shown up at the coronavirus task force meeting in months. We have a majority leader that calls us back here to vote on an unqualified nominee and, and at the same time to vote for judge after judge after judge exposing all the people who can't say anything, I understand, the people in front of you and the presiding officer, and expose all the staff here, and the, the majority leader just doesn't seem to care. That's Senator Sherrod Brown clashing with Senator Dan Sullivan on Monday. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is bucking his own party in the interest of election integrity. Mr. Raffensperger said in an interview that his fellow Republicans, including Senator Lindsey Graham, have been pressuring him to look for ways to invalidate votes in order to try to change the outcome of the November 3rd election, which resulted in President Trump's losing and the two GOP Senate candidates heading to a January runoff. Georgia Representative Doug Collins has also apparently led the charge against voters being able to lawfully cast ballots. Raffensperger denounced Collins as a, quote, liar and charlatan. Senator Graham denied that he had pressured the Georgia Secretary of State, but now there are calls to investigate Graham's role. Social media company CEOs Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jack Dorsey of Twitter testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. They joined lawmakers remotely as they faced scrutiny over how their platforms handled election-related misinformation. AP explained that Dorsey testified that Twitter flagged some 300,000 tweets between October 27th and November 11th for content that was disputed and potentially misleading, representing 0.2% of all U.S. election-related tweets sent during that period. The Washington Post summarized the divide in Congress. Quote, Republicans leading the hearing have accused the companies of going too far in labeling or otherwise limiting the spread of falsehoods on their platforms saying it amounts to censorship of their views. Democrats said the companies have not done enough, especially as Trump and his allies continue to use Twitter and Facebook to spread claims of election fraud without evidence. In other words, Republicans are angry over their lies being labeled as lies. 
A new study based in Sweden has found that just 1% of the world's population contributes to half of all carbon emissions linked to aviation. Researchers dubbed those who fly frequently as super emitters. According to The Guardian, the researchers said the study showed that an elite group enjoying frequent flights had a big impact on the climate crisis that affected everyone and that, quote, U.S. air passengers have by far the biggest carbon footprint among rich countries. And that does it for our news headlines. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. From KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up at Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Conservative Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito made remarks to the Federalist Society last week that were brazenly partisan and shocked legal observers. Among his controversial statements was that the conservative organization that invited him faced, quote, harassment and retaliation for saying anything that departs from the law school orthodoxy. The Federalist Society is notorious for feeding extremist, right-wing, homophobic, anti-abortion, anti-worker or anti-immigrant judges to Republicans for court appointments. Alito also denounced the fact that Christian churches were forced to abide by the same shelter-in-place orders that everyone else did, and he made these regressive remarks about same-sex marriage. You can't say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Until very recently, that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. That this would happen after our decision in Obergefell should not have come as a surprise. Yes, the opinion of the court included words meant to calm the fears of those who cling to traditional views on marriage. But I could see, and so did the other justices in dissent, where the decision would lead. I wrote the following. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able, able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. That is just what is coming to pass. One of the great challenges for the Supreme Court going forward will be to protect freedom of speech. Although that freedom is falling out of favor in some circles, we need to do whatever we can to prevent it from becoming a second-tier constitutional right. And that is Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito last week giving an unabashedly partisan speech at a time when conservatives have a supermajority on the court. One commentator called the speech a, quote, judicial equivalent of a Trump rally. Alito has fueled a growing concern that the nation's highest court is deeply biased. My guest is Lena Zwarenstein. She is the Fair Courts Campaign Director of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Welcome to the program, Lena. Thank you so much for having me, Sonali. I appreciate it. How unusual is it for a sitting Supreme Court justice to give a public speech that is so overtly biased? It is unusual. I think um, the fact that he was so out there in making the comments in which he did was really, really striking to me and obviously, as you mentioned earlier, a number of other legal observers. Um, he started off his remarks incredibly defensive, saying he doesn't want anyone to misconstrue them, except what he did was he went on a tirade about things such as uh, same-sex marriage, about things about the pandemic, and so on. And he really laid out um, for the entire world really what he thinks about decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down, and honestly has paved the way for, I think, advocates who will eventually come in from the court how he may view those uh issues in the future as well. So let's talk about some of the uh, statements that he made specifically regarding same-sex marriage. It sounded like he was um, simply casting the right to espouse homophobia as being 
uh, protected by free uh, speech rights. So the First Amendment uh, is more important than you know, people to live free of discrimination if they're members of the LGBTQ community. Is that, you know, how do you respond to that? I think it is really appalling that he would, you know, take a Supreme Court case and the majority opinion that has said there is such a thing in this country as marriage equality. People can marry who they love. Um, and said basically that, yes, people's, you know, the, the what words that they use and the fact that they can be incredibly homophobic means more than somebody's ability to live their life in full dignity. What I think is really interesting in some of the comments that he made um, really are, are striking and shocking for many of us. So while we do strongly believe that everyone should have the ability to freely live, um, and that is with their faith or without you know any faith at all, really it is the opportunity for people to live in full dignity in this country and that means being able to marry who you want to marry being able to seek resources in your community whether that is the person who bakes your wedding cake or the photographs and so on and so forth but what he is saying is that those public accommodations should not be available to the lgbtq community and he really thinks that we should be actually going back in time and it's really, really shocking to me that that kind of conversation can happen for our LGBTQ uh, community. But it's the same type of argument that one would make um, having you know, had to desegregate the uh, public accommodations previously. You know, people would hopefully no longer say that is it acceptable to deny services to people who, um, you know, because of their skin color. However, they are willing to do so because of the LGBTQ status, and that's just not acceptable. So we also see the statements that Alito made around shelter in place or stay at home orders. And this has been a big issue around the country as the uh, pandemic raged around the nation and states enacted restrictions. Uh, churches didn't want to be held to the same standards as everyone else, so arguing that their right to congregate um, somehow, uh, you know, should be allowed, uh, that, that it was more important than people being able to do other things, as if a virus wouldn't, you know, would simply choose to not spread in the confines of a church like it would in a movie theater. Um, and Samuel Alito appeared to throw some red meat to that uh, faction of Americans, this deeply conservative, fundamentalist, Christian, evangelical Trump base, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many houses of worship totally understood um, and complied with the public health uh, orders that really are trying to help prevent the spread of this very deadly and devastating pandemic. And the fact that he did exactly what you said and throw meat out there um, is incredibly troubling. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that is, um, you know, in his speech, but also what we have seen in the opinions of many of the nominees that Trump has put on the lower courts um, in a lot of their opinions, is trying to pave the way for people to be able to, um, you know, continue to discriminate on um, using religion as a license to do so. Um, and that is really, really incredibly troubling for us. I was just going to say one other thing that I think is important to note, you know, in Justice Alito's speech is that he felt completely, you know, unconstrained. Um, he was not held back in making the comments that he did. And I think that really is a sign that he feels emboldened to do so. As you started at the top, there is a super conservative majority in our Supreme Court, one that is wildly out of step with the public that um, you know we have here. And that emboldenment, I think, is allowing them to make, in Justice Alito in this case, to make these really, really bold claims that are outwardly partisan and incredibly harmful for many people. What's possible we could be doing, though, is extending the code of conduct. So the Supreme Court currently is not bound by a code of conduct, one that a lot of judges on the lower courts are, and that is, you know, in terms of what they're able to say or the impartiality in which that they even, um, you know, try to make sure that there's not even an appearance of impartiality. So lower court judges are bound by this code, but our highest court judges aren't? That's correct. So, wow. Um, it is really, really telling. And I think, you know, what we heard from Justice Alito last week is kind of an amazing, um, you know, contrast to what we heard of Judge, now Justice Barrett, just in her confirmation hearing. You know, 
Justice Barrett was incredibly um, evasive in answering questions about her view of the law when it came to issues related to even the peaceful transfer of power um, that presidents should be able to commit to, or to the fact that climate change is real. She said she wouldn't weigh in because she doesn't want to give an appearance of partiality on any issues that could come before the courts. And then a month later, Justice Alito, now her colleague on the Supreme Court, is going off saying exactly what he thinks about those particular issues. And so there really isn't a, you know, honesty there. And I do think the fact that there isn't a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices is something that we can hopefully rectify, um, you know, in the coming years, that there is more transparency with the court. You know, it's certainly helpful sometimes to know exactly what people and the judges and justices think. However, in a situation like this, it is incredibly, um, harmful to the court that their integrity is really in question as well as their independence by the comments that Justice Alito made last week. He was giving a talk to the Federalist Society and he said during that talk that the Federalist Society faces harassment and retaliation for saying anything that departs from the law from the law school orthodoxy. What was he referring to and, and, and give us that background um, in terms of what impact this group, the Federalist Society, that many Americans have probably never heard of, has had on, on both the Supreme Court and, and lower courts. The Federal Society is a very small sector of the legal community and one that is outsized in terms of especially the judicial nominations process. And what he was doing was really evoking what are a lot of the foundings of the Federalist Society. So in response to the civil rights movement and the progress that people had made in terms of voting rights and the ability to um, access you know, public services um, and making sure that that was you know, possible for all people in this country, especially you know, black and brown people who had been historically um, not allowed uh, into those services, whether that was because of school segregation and so on, there was a large conservative movement that was founded and a lot of those pillars of what that meant was to do things like discredit academia and discredit the media and also to do more to take over the courts because you can put in lifetime appointments people who will do your bidding over the long term and for generations to come. So when he was talking about, you know, the harassment, his words, not mine, that the Federalist Society mm -hmm. faced, a lot of that is the in response to what they have been doing over the past few decades to discredit the progress that has made by putting people on the bench and in law schools and in key positions who have a very regressive vision of the law, one that does not allow for full equality for women, for black and brown people, for LGBTQ people, and so on. And so this sort of ability to play the victim and saying that they have to be quiet because it's not cool to say what they're saying is one that you know we have heard for decades and decades to come but it is part of the plan to really discredit um, academia discredit the media discredit a lot of folks who really do hold the majority view that you know civil and human rights should be for everybody our judges and law should be reflective of the current society that we live in, not one that was, you know, sort of enshrined back when the Constitution was written, but one that the Constitution really was meant to reflect in terms of the values that we have here. And I, um, I understand that uh, a number of the court's conservative justices are, are just members of the Federalist Society. Now, and Alito was not even appointed by Trump. He was appointed by George W. Bush. Uh, and then you had Neil right. Gorsuch and you had uh, Brett Kavanaugh and, of course, then the latest one, Amy Coney Barrett. I'm not sure if Barrett is a, is a member of the society, but I imagine that she was on the list that the organization gave Trump because they literally fed these uh, judges and Supreme Court justice nominees to Republican presidents. There are lists, and we, we're just talking about the Supreme Court, but there's hundreds of uh, lower court federal judges that this organization also influences, right? That's exactly right. Um, on Tuesday, 224 uh, lifetime confirmations will be the milestone that this administration wow. reached. That it represents 30% of our circuit courts, which is that layer right below the Supreme Court, as well as 25% of the district court. So by the end of the week, that will be 228. That is really astonishing, but um, like you said, that this is a real project for the Federalist Society to try to take over our courts with folks who are very reflective only of a small sliver of our country and of the legal community to make sure that they're on the bench for decades to come. 
And so you're suggesting that uh, there are going to be more judges uh, installed even before the end of this week. That means Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who, of course, is the one who uh, takes Trump's appointees uh, or nominees who have been fed to Trump by the Federalist Society. McConnell ensures that they receive Senate confirmation hearings, and because Republicans control a majority in the Senate, they get pushed through regardless of what Democrats say. He, after the election, after it's clear Trump lost, uh, and and you know after he has refused to um, consider a bill to help people who are struggling economically with the pandemic has chosen to focus the Senate's time on packing the lower courts, right? There's no other way to do this. This is he's has been his agenda throughout the last four years and continues to be his agenda in the last month and a half of, of Trump's time in office. That's exactly right. And it is really egregious that while this nation is suffering from a public health and economic crisis that is disproportionately impacting black and brown people, that they are so fixated on the courts and installing judges who will do harm to those very communities. It is absolutely appalling. It was remarkable, you know, with the unfortunate passing of Justice Ginsburg that, you know, Senator McConnell got his entire caucus in line to rush through in 39 days from vacancy announcement to confirmation, now Justice Barrett to the court in anticipation and real desperation to make sure that they solidified that but that is exactly what's happening also at the lower courts. This has been a real project and endeavor of Mitch McConnell to try to concentrate great power while he can because he knows that the courts will do his bidding for them for decades to come. And this is becoming an issue in the Georgia Senate runoff races right now because there are two seats that Democrats could win, which if they do, will give them just the barest majority on the Senate only because uh, Vice President Kamala Harris would be a tiebreaker. And uh, Republicans are warning Georgia voters that uh, Democrats want to pack the courts and therefore they should not get those two Senate seats. But it has been the Republicans packing the courts. And that's what Joe Biden is also being accused of doing for the Supreme Court. He has said that he might consider adding more seats to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can the incoming Biden-Harris administration do anything about the conservative transformation of the American judiciary, whether it's lower courts or the nation's highest courts? Yeah, it is imperative that on day one of their administration that they have bold nominees who have a demonstrated commitment to civil and human rights, who are fair-minded, have a progressive vision of the law, and are actually reflective and representative of the amazing diversity we have in our country. And it would be incredibly helpful for them to have allies in the Senate, those who control the calendar, who gets a hearing, who can have a vote. Mitch McConnell has proven, you know, even what we saw with the historic obstruction of Merrick Garland, who was President Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court in 2016, that he likely won't move forward any nominees. And that would be um, very, very harmful. But the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, it is incumbent on them to make sure that courts and judges are a priority for them. Of course, we absolutely need COVID relief for our communities. We need to be making sure that we are passing things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and we need a Senate that will actually function and do its job. And we do need to modernize our courts, and that is with the types of judges who are actually reflective of this country. Um, you know, unfortunately, what President Trump has done to our courts of his 200 and what will be 28 nominees by the end of the week, nearly 90% of those nominees are white, and nearly 70 wow. or nearly 80% of them are male. We have a lot of work to do in order to make sure our courts even look like our communities. And so this really has to be a priority. I mean, and that if, if one was looking for any indication about the Trump presidency being a white male supremacist presidency, there you have it. There is a very clear indication of um, how our courts that were already not representative enough have over the past four years become even less representative. Now, if it turns out that the Republicans retain control of the Senate next year, what can a Biden presidency do? I mean, obviously, there will be lower court vacancies. Biden will put forward nominees and McConnell will what stall for four years and refuse to seat anyone. It will be incumbent upon all of us to be as vocal as we have been for the past four years to fight for something. We were fighting for our democracy. Um, and so we need to keep 
keep fighting. And I think the more we can compel this incoming administration, as well as our senators, to make sure that they are pushing forward really good, bold nominees, um, the better chances that we have in order to get anything done and get through. So it really is going to be incumbent upon us to do that. But I think that you know the types of messaging and signaling that this administration sends on day one is going to be incredibly um, uh, sort of dependent on where we go from here. We have fought far too hard, um, and you know we it feels like we have taken tremendous steps backwards. But I think what I've been so hopeful or gotten hope from was the ways in which the communities have really stepped forward that I think can springboard us into the future. Of course, you know, Mitch McConnell will do everything he can, but he really can't ignore the will of the people. So we have to keep on uh, screaming about this and talking about it. So, uh, you know, if McConnell has his way, or I should say before there are any more vacancies on the Supreme Court, or if Biden chooses to not add more seats, we're looking at a court where there are six conservatives, three liberals, even if John Roberts decides to join the liberals on some votes, then we're looking at five to four um, decisions on many issues. We're looking at a potentially very dark time for cases approaching or coming before the Supreme Court now, even as we have Democrat, a Democrat entering the White House. That's right. And it is in incredibly um, harrowing to be in this moment right now, knowing that so many people's rights are on the line. We had before the Trump administration significant progress we needed to make for everybody. And it feels like right now, it feels like we're going uphill battle, but we know that the fight for equal justice will be one for our entire life. And what that exactly looks like um, right now feels daunting, but I think at day by day, we see how important it is that courts are. One thing that I find um, tremendous um, you know, encouragement by is just thinking about this most recent election, the one by which you know, we have a president-elect uh, Biden and pre Vice President-elect Harris when doing the exit polling and talking about whether or not Supreme Court nominations were a factor, a majority of uh, people who voted said, yes, it was a factor. And majority of them voted for President Biden, or now President-elect Biden. And that to me gives me a lot of hope that people do understand the ways in which whatever it is that they care passionately about, whether that is climate change, that is justice reform, that is voting rights, that that really is intrinsically linked to who sits on the bench in our courts and who has the ability to make those nominations really does depend, um, uh, or it is really um, important to how the, the judges would rule in the future and what our rights look like and how we're able to exercise them in the future. So I do have hope that people really do recognize this and will continue to fight for fair and just courts because for far too long, you know, corporations have had way too much power in this, and it's time we, you know, it's going to be a long haul, but the people um, have spoken, and I think we need to keep speaking in order for them to become our court. So let me just finally um, wrap up our conversation asking you to comment on a statement that Erwin Chemerinsky, UC Berkeley School of Law uh, Dean, wrote in the LA Times. He said, there's nothing wrong with Justice Alito telling the world his views. And uh, Chemerinsky, who's quite progressive, said he was announcing to the world that he knows he has the votes on the Supreme Court to achieve his agenda and is committing to moving it forward. We're used to hearing agendas from political candidates, not judges but we may be better off hearing him confirm his ideological biases rather than pretending otherwise. What do you make of this, that it's good for us to just know openly what Alito thinks? And can this then, can Alito being so open about his agenda give Joe Biden as president the cover that he needs to add more Supreme Court justices to the court? All he has to do is point to Alito's speech and say, I'm not trying to pack the courts. I'm simply trying to make it fairer because we have, you know, a, a whole wing that's represented by Alito. And Alito made clear that he's, his regressive views are out of line with the majority of the American public. Absolutely. There is something to be said to know exactly where somebody stands. What I have found incredibly frustrating for so many of the recent, you know, confirmations and in the hearings where nominees wouldn't comment on the law. It really is helpful to know where judges stand because ideally what they can do is help improve the law. They are often the final arbiters of it. So there is something to be said about knowing where one stands. And I think you're, and as well as Dean Chemerinsky are right, to know where he, uh, Justice Alito specifically stands 
and where we always suspected he does, where he's written about, and what he has further given us even more clarity about last week, is that he does not stand on the right side of history. And we do have a lot of work to do to make sure that our courts are more fair, are more just, and do live up to what's written on top of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. Whether or not that that can be used as justification to expand the number of Supreme Court uh, seats, there's you know, a lot that can be done, you know, in terms of the Supreme Court, but also the lower courts in order to modernize them, keep up with caseloads, um, to make sure that they are reflective and representative of the amazing uh, uh, diversity that we have in our country. Um, but there is, you know, something to be said about knowing exactly where he is and knowing that that is exactly not where we want to go. That can be emboldening for those of us who really see for exactly what he is, what he stands for, and how that is um, not where we are. I want to thank you so much, Lena, for joining us today. Give out a website for your organization. Certainly, it's civilrights.org. And we'll post a link to that from our website. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sonali. I appreciate it. My guest has been Lena Zwarenstein, Fair Courts Campaign Director of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We've been discussing how biased the U.S. judiciary has become toward conservative values. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Peru has been engulfed in a tumultuous crisis for the past week, switching presidents three times as mass protests have filled the streets. The Peruvian Congress picked Francisco Sagasti to lead the nation most recently, a purported centrist, after interim president Manuel Merino stepped down five days into his tenure. Merino was installed after Congress ousted President Martin Vizcarra, accusing him of corruption. Vizcarra was carrying out an ambitious anti-corruption probe of legislators himself. My guest is Kenneth Roberts, the Richard J. Schwartz Professor of Government at Cornell University and the Director of the Latin American Studies Program at Cornell's Center for International Studies. Welcome to the program, Professor uh, Roberts. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So in recent days, there have been huge protests. Uh, two young people among the protesters were killed, Jack Pintado and Jordan Sotelo. And there's just been mass police repression. I understand that though that police violence is in part what led to Merino having been forced to step down. But let's start at the beginning. What was Martin Vizcarra engaged in and what did it have to do with or how, why was he ousted by members of Congress? Well, it's a, it's a complicated question. And uh, actually, Vizcarra himself was a, a president who replaced uh, Pedro uh, Kuczynski, who was the, the elected president in 2016, but he was impeached in 2018. And so Martin Vizcarra was his vice president who became uh, the, the president then after the impeachment of Kuczynski. Vizcarra himself was widely viewed as a relatively independent figure. He's not somebody from one of the traditional political parties, which are themselves quite weak in, in Peru. Uh, but he was rather he was a somewhat independent figure who was not seen as deeply involved in a lot of the, the partisan fray in the country. And he was seen as somebody who was committed to trying to clean up some of the problems of corruption that they have had 
in Peru. And uh, he was taking a number of steps to try to reform the institution. In fact, he had dissolved the previous Congress, which he was constitutionally authorized to do uh, as, as part of his efforts to try to reform the institution. So this was actually a, a newly elected Congress, elected just in January this year, uh, that has now uh, impeached him. Uh, and this is in the run-up, it, it was in the run-up to new elections that are scheduled to be held ne next April. Vizcarra was not planning to be a candidate, and so he was somebody who was essentially filling out the term of the previous, uh, previously elected president uh, and was trying to bring about some reforms, uh, in particular uh, trying to uh, eliminate the impunity of members of Congress who have been charged with corruption and also some reforms in terms of the selection of judges. There's also been considerable concerns about corruption in the judicial process. So Vizcarra was actually seen as a reformer who was committed to trying to clean up the political system. And that ruffled some feathers in Congress. And I should point out half of the members of Congress are themselves under investigation. Half of them, wow. Half of them, half of them. And the concern is that uh, one of the big concerns is that some of the congressional leaders involved in the impeachment of Vizcarra uh, are basically trying to protect themselves. And so that's what a lot of the controversy is about. I should point out Vizcarra was quite popular by Peruvian standards uh, in public opinion surveys. He had about 50% approval ratings and about 80% of the Peruvian uh, public in surveys was opposed to the impeachment. And so that's why you're seeing the massive protest movement that erupted. This was widely seen, I think, as an abuse of congressional impeachment powers. It, it, whether that was a naked power play on the part of the congressional leaders, or in fact, even worse, an effort to protect themselves from, uh, from corruption investigations, that's why this impeachment was extraordinarily unpopular and why there's been such a popular backlash against it. I understand that their just Congress's justification for, and it was a majority of Congress who removed him, uh, for, for removing Vizcarra was they accused him of accepting bribes many, many years before, but he hasn't, has he been formally charged? Has he had, a, I understand that he's denying any of these, all of these charges. He's, he has denied the charges. These were recent charges, and there is an investigation which he has, which he was allowing to go forward. And but the uh, so essentially he was not contesting. He he's denied the charges. He was allowing the investigation to go forward, but he has not been. He was not formally charged before he was impeached. So at the very least, I think you could argue that the Congress moved precipitously to move towards impeachment before he was actually charged with with corruption. I mean, it, it seems fairly obvious that a bunch of folks who've, you know, been accused of corruption were moving against an anti-corruption leader likely to spare themselves be, from being investigated. So then in comes Manuel Merino. Why does he last only five days? Merino is, is not someone who had a real strong political base to begin with. He's a member of uh, Acción Popular, which is one of the traditional conservative or right-wing political parties in Peru. Uh, he was the leader of the Congress, and so when they impeached Vizcarra um, as the president of the Congress, he then became the, the country's president. Uh, but he did so, as I said, in a move that was widely seen within the public, I think is, is at best opportunistic, uh, and, and uh, in many respects is having been an abuse of, the, of Congress's impeachment powers. And so when they, when they led this impeachment process, the public backlash was very powerful and, was, and it, it occurred immediately. There were protests from the beginning um, and he only lasted a few days. As you mentioned, there were several people killed in the protests over the weekend. There are another 42 people who are missing uh, who were involved in the protest activities, and so we we don't know exactly what is what has happened. But I think in part the um, the police repression that was used against the protesters severely undermined what was already a, a government of very questionable legality um, and very questionable political support. And uh, it was very clear, I think, to Marino and the people behind him. Uh, that his government did not have a sufficient base of political support to remain in office. 
So two people killed, 42 missing. People are understandably upset. Also, they're in the middle of a pandemic. They're out in the streets protesting. And now Congress has named Francisco Sagasti to lead the nation. He's the third leader in a week uh, in Peru. Who is he? He is uh, a member of what is known as the Purple Party, uh, a, basically a centrist political party, again, a very small party. It's important to keep in mind, Peru has essentially functioned without a, a, a party system to speak of for about 30 years now. The traditional party system collapsed in 1990 in the midst of an economic crisis and a civil war. And essentially, Peru has cycled personalities ever since then with very minimal party or organized basis of political support. So, but Sagasti was a member of Congress from a centrist political party, and he's somebody who was, I, who I think has a, is widely recognized to be a respectable political figure. He has not, he's not one of the 50% members of the Congress who is under investigation uh, for corruption charges, and he's uh, someone, one of the, one of the minority members in Congress who voted against the impeachment. And so some of the demands of the protest movement was that they wanted uh, a new president who was not under investigation for corruption himself uh, and someone who did not vote in favor of the impeachment of Viscara. And so Sagasti is one of the few members of Congress who, who met both of those criteria. And he has now taken, taken office uh, with certainly a broader base of support than, than what Marino had. And we'll see where it goes from here. But it's been an incredibly turbulent couple of weeks in Peru. So if Sagasti manages to stay, you know, in power, what Im impact do you think that'll have on police brutality? Because that's been a huge uh, problem. Are police, as far as you know, this week pulling back? Um, that's a, a, I think it's still early to see exactly how this will play out in the streets, but I think it's probably, it, it should be a calming step uh, to have Marino removed uh, as, as someone who is in many ways the ringleader of the impeachment. And so Marino uh, has now resigned from office and there's a new president who is seen as less of a polarizing figure and as someone who I think is capable of, uh, of having a, a broader base of acceptance. And if that how that, uh, how that translates into the level of protest on the streets and the level of police repression, uh, I think it at least provides some hope uh, that the level of violence in the streets would be diminishing as, as we move forward. So uh, will there be interim, or will there be rather new elections sometime next year? Merino came and saying there would be elections in April. That still wasn't enough for the public. Um, is Sagasti announcing, inter uh, announcing that he is interim and that there will be elections next year? The plan going forward is that there would still be elections uh, next April. Hmm. That's right. And, and so what happens to Viscara's anti-corruption probes? What happens to all of those... Um, investigations? Well, that's a good question, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty as to just where it goes. Uh, I should point out the, the Constitutional Court is scheduled to, to have hearings this week on, on the essentially the grounds uh, on, under which Viscara himself had been impeached as to whether or not there were constitutional grounds. The, the, the formal the formal grounds used by the Congress is what they called uh, moral incapacity, um, and the Constitutional Court is going to rule on that. That is not expected to lead to any sort of reinstatement of Viscara, however, um, and Viscara does not appear to be pursuing that. Uh, so they'll be a, essentially their equivalent of the Supreme Court will be ruling on the impeachment process and trying to clarify the ground rules as we go forward. But I think at this point, the most likely scenario is that we're in a situation with an, with an interim president uh, who would govern the country until April, at which point there would be new elections held. What is the uh, backdrop for, or the political, social, and economic backdrop for what has been happening in Peru? How has Peru been weathering the pandemic? Where do where does inequality lie right now in Peru? Peru certainly has, you know, a, a colorful history, um, flirtation with dictatorships, as do many countries in Latin America. 
Right, and to begin with, it's important to recognize Peru has been hit very, very hard by the pandemic, uh, both uh, in terms of public health uh, consequences, where Peru, in fact, probably has the highest rate of infection in the world. Uh, it has also been perhaps the most severely affected economically uh, by the measures taken to try to address the pandemic. And we think the Peruvian economy has probably contracted in the neighborhood of 30% this year. And there, the World Bank is estimating at the, at the end of the year, there probably will be about a 14% contraction or recession in the Peruvian economy. And so this is among the worst, if not the worst, in the world in terms of the effects. Latin America in general has been hit very hard by the pandemic, but within the region, Peru has been hit especially hard. And in part, that's because of the inequalities that you mentioned within the economy and the fact that there's a very large informal sector of the economy uh, and you know densely, densely populated urban space around Lima. Uh, very difficult for people to social distance. People can't stay home and work virtually when they're, for the most part, when they're employed in, in the informal sector of the economy. They have to go out, they have to take public transport to get to work. Uh, they're in social spaces that make it extremely difficult to protect themselves from, from the virus. And so Peru has genuinely been devastated by, uh, by, what's, by the effects of this pandemic. And that's it's part of the backdrop of what we see taking place for the political discontent that has now emerged on, on the streets. Now, Sagasti, Francisco Sagasti, the newly installed president of Peru, is a former World Bank official. Is he expected to um, carry out any sort of agenda before elections next year, or is he seen largely as a caretaker president? It would be, it's hard to imagine any ambitious economic reforms in terms of development models or anything in the short period of time he has. I mean, de facto, just dealing with the, and trying to, to, to calm the waters politically is going to take a lot of his attention, and then simply trying to respond to the economic crisis and to the public health emergency in the country. So uh, they, there have been some efforts to try to provide compensatory funding, targeted funding for low-income sectors in Peruvian society in, in, the, con in the, the context of the public health emergency. I think you'll see some efforts to try to do that. Whether he'll be able to get a little bit of maneuvering space uh, from international creditors, this is part of the ongoing negotiations throughout Latin America, uh, countries that are having to pay off debts uh, incurred from the past in the context of a severe pandemic and an economic, a, a severe economic recession. Clearly, Peru and many other countries in the region are not in a position to pay off uh, the existing debts in the short term. And so it could be that you will see efforts to try to uh, to renegotiate some of the, the debts and try to maintain forms of targeted social spending to help low-income sectors deal with the crisis. But I, it's hard to imagine any ambitious effort of, of economic reform in the short period of time before the April election. And then what about Peru's Congress itself, which is not very popular uh, in light of what they did to Viscara? Um, the New York Times quoted one senior researcher at a Lima-based think tank uh, who said, Peru's Congress has become a Molotov cocktail built on unstable ingredients mixed together from years of misguided policy. What do you think? I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, it's an institution that has clearly mis misplayed its cards politically in, the, in this most recent cycle of, of conflict in, in the country. And as I said, the fact that half of the, the, the congressional representatives uh, themselves are under investigation for corruption. Now, I understand uh, that part of the problem is that Peru has a law that allows anybody to run for Congress, even if they have a criminal background. And once they're in Congress, they become immune from prosecution. And that's part of, part of what Vizcarra was trying to remove as part right. of his institutional reforms. And that's, as I said, part of you know the, the you know part of the public suspicion of what the Congress has done is that they're trying to protect themselves. That they wanted to remove a president who was trying to remove that impunity, and consequently to try to, to clean up uh, you know the institutions from the this deeply entrenched corruption that the country has. I should point out that what of Peru's the most recent series of presidents of Peru, the la the four living presidents are all either in prison or on the run from the law. Uh, and one of them, Alan Garcia, committed suicide 
uh, a year or two ago uh, in response when he was in the process of being arrested on corruption charges. And so um, essentially all of Peru's living presidents uh, have been implicated in the corruption scandals. And so there's, there's a, a serious problem here that has tainted all of the existing institutions. And in some ways, Vizcarra was seen as at least partially removed, at least from the worst of that. Uh, but he has now clashed the course with the, with the congressional branch of government that was deeply implicated. I should point out, there's a version of this is a, has a lot of parallels to what you saw in Brazil. With I was literally about to ask you that. Neighboring Brazil right next door, and you had a president who was investigating corruption, accused of corruption, and removed just a few right. years ago. And of course, it was the first female president in the history of Peru, or excuse me, the history of Brazil. That's right. Uh, which which is, is worth keeping in mind. Um, and she herself actually was not impeached on grounds of corruption that had to do with the managing of public uh, of public accounts and how and it essentially she was using the same financial practices that her predecessors had used um, but ultimately she was she was turned on by her more conservative coalition partners who themselves were under investigation for corruption and when she refused she basically refused to protect them and we're talking and about Dilma Rousseff here, them. just to remind yeah. our audience. Dilma Rousseff. Right. Dilma Rousseff was the president. And so it was the leaders of Congress from, the, from her coalition, a more conservative coalition partners, who basically turned against her uh, and led the impeachment process when she declined to protect them as the investigations were moving forward. Hmm. And so there, there are a lot of parallels between what you saw in the Brazilian case in 2016 2017 and what you're seeing today in, in Peru. I mean, it's, also, it's almost as though the Peruvian legislators um, took a lesson from what Brazil managed to do. Um, where do you think the, finally, where do you think the Peruvian public um, will go from here? There have been mass protests in the streets. There's been a lot of violence against protesters. I, do, do you hope that there will be this ramping up of um, organizing efforts ahead of next year's elections where people might be able to feel comfortable that their democratic aspirations will be respected. That's, that's what I think a lot of people are, are, are waiting to see, whether the energy that you see in this protest movement, but can that be channeled into institutional arenas, in particular into the electoral process, or can, can you construct reconstruct political parties that, that actually represent these different interests uh, within society that have taken to the streets now. Um, I should point out Peru, in, in, in the regional context, Peru has had less of the social mobilization and protests in recent decades than what we've seen in countries like Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, uh, Argentina. They've had, those countries have all had cycles of mass social protests like this Peru has been relatively quiescent for complicated reasons. Um, and as I said, the traditional party system broke down. What we're waiting to see now is, is can these different social groups that are becoming activated, that are engaged in the public arena, in the protest sphere, but can they take that energy into the democratic institutions in ways that can provide more effective and, um, and less corrupt forms of political leadership than what they've had in recent years? Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Roberts, for joining us today and helping us understand what's happening in Peru. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. My guest has been Kenneth M. Roberts. He is the Richard J. Schwartz Professor of Government at Cornell University and the Director of the Latin American Studies Program at Cornell's Center for International Studies. We've been discussing what's been happening in Peru. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files.
tuned in to listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is excited to be part of the Willamette Week Give Guide this year. When you support KBOO through Give Guide, not only does it support your favorite